on behalf of the Virginia Journal of Criminal Law, I'd like to thank you all for attending. Uh, and I'd also like to thank our panel uh, this afternoon uh, to discuss sentencing in Virginia. I'm Sean Welsh. I'm a third-year law student and the editor-in-chief of the journal. Uh, Virginia law has a history of excellence in criminal justice from our famous alumni, such as Robert Kennedy and Robert Mueller, to the countless graduates who have gone on to become prosecutors, defenders, and policymakers in criminal justice, and, of course, our stellar faculty uh, that we're all very happy to have here at UVA. Um, the journal is a recent addition to the law school, and it seeks to foster that commitment to criminal justice through the publication of scholarly articles and through symposia like today's event. We chose to focus on sentencing this year because of the impact it has in every criminal case. The sen uh, a sentence is the most significant consequence of a prosecution, and to many it's the purpose of the prosecution. I will briefly introduce our panel and then turn things over to them for today's discussion. See, at the end of the table is John Monahan, a psychologist um, who joined the law school faculty in 1980. He currently holds the John S. Shannon Distinguished Professorship in Law. He received his PhD from Indiana University and his Bachelor of the Arts from State University of New York at Stony Brook. Uh, Professor Monahan was uh, elected a member of the Institute of Medicine of the National Academy of Sciences in 1989 and has served on the Committee on Law and Justice of the National Research Council. He was elected a fellow of the John Simon Guggenheim Foundation and a fellow of the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences. Seated next to Professor Monahan is Stephen Benjamin. Steve Benjamin is a founding partner of Benjamin and Deport. He also serves as special counsel to the Virginia Senate Courts of Justice Committee and is a member of the Virginia Indigent Defense Commission. He is a past president of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, a fellow of the American Board of Criminal Lawyers, and a past president of the Virginia Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. From 1997 until 2004, he served as an adjunct faculty member to the University of Richmond School of Law. Mr. Benjamin was also counsel in the landmark Virginia Supreme Court decision recognizing a constitutional right to forensic expert assistance at state expense for indigent defendants. Seated next to Mr. Benjamin is Linda Bryant, who was appointed by Attorney General Mark Herring as Deputy Attorney General for the Criminal Justice and Public Safety Division, the large, largest division in the Office of the Attorney General. Ms. Bryant went to the University of Virginia and then to law school at the College of William and Mary. She served in the JAG Corps in the U.S. Army, becoming paratrooper qualified. After leaving the Army, she joined the Norfolk Commonwealth's Attorney's Office, where she rose through the ranks, becoming a Deputy Commonwealth's Attorney. As a prosecutor, she handled thousands of felony, felonies, many DUIs, vehicular homicide cases, and murder cases that included death penalty cases. She also led efforts in Norfolk to reduce the number of juveniles certified as an adult. She's been awarded the Virginia Leader in Law Award, recognized and awarded by Virginia prosecutors the Distinguished Prosecutor Award, awarded a Southampton Roads Woman of Distinction Award, and awarded the DCJS Outstanding Victim Service Award for her work with victims over the years. She currently serves on the Virginia Sentencing Commission, the Ethics Committee of the Virginia State Bar, and the Advisory Board of, uh, to Prevent Child Abuse um, at Hampton Roads. And most importantly, her daughter will be going to UVA next year and will be on the UVA women's soccer team. And finally, in our first speaker today is Meredith Farrar-Owens. She's the director of the Virginia 
Criminal Sentencing Commission. She's been with the Sentencing Commission since its creation and previously served as, de as its deputy director. There she plays a lead role in the development, implementation, and administration of Virginia's sentencing guidelines. She has conducted research on such, su such subjects as offender risk assessment, sex offender recidivism, drug crime, and probation violators. Ms. Ferrar Owens is also a graduate of the University of Virginia, where she received a Bachelor of Arts degree in economics with a minor in government. With that, I'll turn things over to Ms. Ferrar Owens. Thank you so much for that introduction. It is a pleasure to be here this afternoon. As an alumna, I always enjoy coming back to Charlottesville as often as I can. I've been asked to get, present an overview of Virginia's sentencing guidelines for you this afternoon. But first, I do believe it's important to start with a historical uh, perspective to give you all a context for discussing sentencing in Virginia. Virginia's history with sentencing guidelines actually dates back nearly three decades. The original purpose of sentencing guidelines in Virginia was to address unwarranted sentencing disparities. That is to say, at that time, offenders convicted of similar crimes with similar criminal histories were often receiving very different and sometimes dramatically different sentences in Virginia. In fact, two studies back in the 1980s revealed these disparities in sentencing in Virginia. When presented with this information, Virginia Circuit Court judges voted to pursue the development of sentencing guidelines here to address those disparities. So the Chief Justice in Virginia at that time formed a judicial committee to develop a blueprint for what Virginia sentencing guidelines would look like. And after several years of pilot testing, the sentencing guidelines were implemented statewide for the first time in 1991. Now, the features of the original sentencing guidelines are very important. These were features that the judges in Virginia thought were absolutely critical to any sentencing guidelines that would be adopted here. First and foremost, our judges wanted voluntary compliance with those guidelines, unlike the other systems in the 1980s that had been adopted that were presumptive or mandatory, as in the federal system, as you heard about this morning. Virginia's judges rejected the two-dimensional two grid sentencing guidelines that had been adopted in several states, such as Minnesota. Uh, Virginia's judges felt that to be an oversimplification of a very, very complex process of sentencing. Virginia's judges wanted the ranges, the recommended ranges, to be broader than in other systems. Uh, states like Minnesota, for example, and even North Carolina had very narrow ranges within which judges were supposed to sentence. And finally, and perhaps most importantly in Virginia, our judges wanted guidelines that were grounded in historical sentencing practices. Our judges were very concerned that a group of people would sit in a conference room behind closed doors and just pick what the guidelines ought to be. So our judges insisted that, those, that the guidelines in Virginia be grounded in historical practices. And in essence, what that does is it gave our judges from the very beginning the confidence in the knowledge and understanding of how the guidelines were developed, where, did, where they came from, and judges knew very much so where, that, where the source of the guidelines were. So just to touch a little bit about the methodology that we developed to create those historically-based sentencing guidelines, and it was based on statistical modeling. So we analyzed the historical data to identify all the statistically significant factors that influenced sentencing decisions at that time. We identified the inappropriate factors, such as race, socioeconomic status, and the like, to eliminate the influence on future sentencing decisions, and took the remaining factors and created sentencing guidelines forms that, to be scored, 
with, the, the, with those factors, and the points were based on their relative importance in the statistical model. So where prior record was the most important, those factors would receive the most points, for example. In these original guidelines, the prison recommendation, we call that the in-out decision, was tied to the historical incarceration rate. So the idea was not to send a larger proportion of people to prison. It was to say, send the same proportion of people to prison, but just that it would be the, the more consistent in who was going to prison, that it would consistently be the more serious offenders going to our correctional system. And finally, the prison sentence length recommendations were then tied to the middle 50% of historical sentences, eliminating the extremes at the high and the low end. So the recommended range became that middle 50%. Virginia's criminal justice system underwent a really significant change in the mid-1990s. Abolishing parole was a significant issue in the gubernatorial campaign in 1993. Parole provisions at that time were extremely complex and it was difficult for citizens, judges and victims alike, to figure out how long an offender would serve in prison for a particular sentence ordered by the court. Moreover, some offenders we found in our analysis could serve as little as one-fifth of the sentence ordered by the court. So the new governor, when he took office, formed a task force to develop a comprehensive reform plan, and the General Assembly then enacted sentencing reform provisions effective for any felony committed on or after January 1st, 1995. Now, there were several goals to this reform legislation which are key to talking about sentencing in Virginia today. Obviously, the first goal was to abolish parole for any new felony committed. Secondly, was to establish truth in sentencing in Virginia. And in Virginia, that was set by the General Assembly at a minimum of 85% time served for any felon uh, convicted in Virginia. And I have the word transparency there because that was a big issue for uh, those members of the gubernatorial task force was the discussion about transparency. Citizens of Virginia needed to know what a sentence meant in terms of the actual time served in prison. Next, there was a, a goal to target violent felons for longer terms of incarceration than they had been serving in the past under the old parole system. The governor's task force looked at a wide variety of data, including length of stay in prison at that time by uh, offenders with various different profiles. So the decision was made to target violent felons for longer terms of incarceration, the most dangerous offenders. Uh, so we, that was termed to be the selective incapacitation of violent offenders. Conversely, on the other hand, there was a decision to do something else with nonviolent offenders, and that was to redirect prison-bound, low-risk, nonviolent felons to less costly sanctions other than traditional prison or jail incarceration. That meant there was a need to expand alternative punishment options for nonviolent felons. A continuing goal was to, to reduce sentencing disparities, the original goal of the sentencing guidelines. And finally, the reform legislation created a sentencing commission to oversee this system of voluntary sentencing guidelines. The sentencing guidelines, though, as they were originally developed, were for a system with parole, which judges gave a sentence and offenders only served a fraction of it in prison. Uh, the, new, the sentencing guidelines had to be revised to be compatible with the new system, uh, but they remained historically based. So this is what we did. We started with, instead of historical sentences, we started with historical time served in prison. We used five years of data and looked at um, many, many, many profiles of offenders. We increased that historical time served by 13.4%, because remember, offenders could earn up to 15% 
in sentence credits under the new system had to serve a minimum of 85%. Uh, so we added back on 13.4% as an estimate in anticipation in the, of the reduction in time served for those earned sentence credits. They wouldn't earn all 15%, but close to it. <clears throat> we then eliminated the highest 25% and the lowest 25% of time served value. So again, eliminated the extremes. And once again, the prison sentence length recommendations were tied to the middle 50% not of sentences now, but of historical time served. And this became the, uh, the base recommendation under the new no parole system. But remember I talked about the goal of uh, targeting no, uh, violent offenders for longer terms of incarceration. So the General Assembly required us to incorporate what we call sentencing enhancements into the guidelines to increase the length of the recommendation for violent offenders. Now, the level of the enhancement was tied to the seriousness of the offender's prior record. And in general, what we're finding is about one in five of Virginia's felons qualify for a guidelines enhancement. And they qualify it because they have current offenses violent or they have a prior offense that's defined as violent in the Code of Virginia. Because the new guidelines used historical time served as the base, however, nonviolent offenders continue to serve the same amount of time on average as they did under the parole system. So the goal was to maintain the length of stay on average for nonviolent offenders and only increase length of stay for violent offenders. All right, with that little bit of history, I think now we can shift into talking about uh, sentencing in Virginia using these guidelines. So just a few rules that, we are, that are required to be followed in the Code of Virginia. <clears throat> Preparation of the guidelines is mandatory in every case for which guidelines exist. Currently, the guidelines apply to about 95% of the felony sentencing events in Virginia circuit courts. Only prosecutors and probation officers are authorized to prepare the official guidelines for the court. Judges are required by statute to review the guidelines, but most importantly, compliance with the guidelines remains voluntary. The only, only exception really to the voluntary nature of the guidelines is that judges, if they sentence outside of the recommended guidelines range, the code requires them to submit a written explanation for the departure. There is no limitation as to what can be used as a departure reason. Uh, they can use any, any reason that they think is appropriate in that case. <clears throat> By code, there's no appellate review of guidelines errors or departures. In Virginia, jury sentencing has been retained. Virginia is one of six states that allows jury sentencing in non-capital cases, so certainly minority of cases, but juries are not allowed to receive any of the sentencing guidelines information. Now I know um, risk assessment might be of some interest to you all, so I've included a couple slides to talk about how Virginia's guidelines utilize risk assessment. This has to do with <clears throat> targeting nonviolent offenders and redirecting some portion of them, the lowest risk ones, for alternative sanctions other than traditional incarceration in prison or jail. We did this based on a study of, of 1,500 offenders here in Virginia, looking at over 200 factors that may be important in, in maybe correlated with recidivism. And what we were able to do is to develop a risk assessment worksheet based on the factors that we found to be statistically correlated with recidivism rates and patterns here in Virginia. Our General Assembly did not want a risk assessment tool off the shelf that it had been developed someplace else. There was interest in finding a Virginia-specific or developing a Virginia-specific risk assessment tool. After several years of pilot testing and refining, 
Risk assessment was implemented statewide in 2002. So I just want to reiterate that for risk assessment, the goal is just to produce an instrument, as it says here on the slide, broadly accurate, providing judges with con a consistent and structured way to consider risk if they choose to do so. So it is it's not mandatory, it's just simply another tool that a judge can consider if he or she chooses to do so. But it, by, by using the tool, judges can think about risk in a structured and consistent way. Otherwise, informally, in their own minds, everybody can have their own version of a risk assessment tool and can take into account any factor that they want to in their own mind and give those factors any weight that they choose in their own mind. So the tool is to provide an empirical base for judges to consider. In Virginia, risk assessment is completed only for larceny, fraud, and drug cases for offenders who are recommended for incarceration by the guidelines. So, <coughs> excuse me, if the, guide, if the guidelines recommend probation without incarceration for someone, they don't undergo risk assessment. Also, offenders with a prior conviction for a violent felony are excluded from risk assessment evaluation. Offenders who score low enough on the risk scale, uh, guidelines then will indicate a dual recommendation for that offender either the traditional incarceration recommended by the sentencing guidelines or alternative punishment short of prison or jail. And if the judge does either one of those things, he or she is considered in compliance with the guidelines. I think it's important to note two things. First of all, um, Virginia's guidelines here, the risk assessment tool, we don't recommend any specific form of alternative punishment, such as drug treatment or the like, because there's so much variation across the Commonwealth in terms of what is available for judges to use and treatment resources that are available. So knowing that there's considerable variation from locality to locality, the guidelines simply say that to the judge that they can consider an alternative sanction of some form, and the judge knows and is what's available in his own locality. Second thing I think it's important to note that Virginia's risk assessment tool can't hurt an offender. These are offenders who are already recommended for prison or jail by the traditional sentencing guidelines, the risk assessment then can only help an offender by recommending an alternative sanction. <clears throat> now, there have been risk assessment tools uh, in general in the last year or so that have been criticized, uh, in both in general and specifically for some of the factors that are on those forms. In Virginia, the newest risk assessment tools we've implemented have age, gender, and various factors for current offense and prior record. Those are the only factors on our risk assessment forms as of right now. Just to give you a little sense about how the guidelines work in Virginia, Section A is the first thing you complete, and that's the prison in-out recommendation. It determines whether the guidelines are going to recommend a prison term or not. If prison is not recommended, then Section B is completed, and that determines whether the recommendation is going to be for straight probation or a jail sentence. You can see that here. If it's a nonviolent offender, Section D will also be completed to determine alternative punishment versus a jail incarceration sentence recommendation. If Section A recommended a prison term, Section C is then completed to determine the length of that prison recommendation. <clears throat> Remember that middle 50% we talked about. That, that will be the sentence length recommendation. And again, if it's a nonviolent offender, Section D will be completed, and that's the risk assessment form. So I wanted to give a little bit of sense of the types of factors that are included on our sentencing guidelines forms. We have 17 different offense groups, so the guidelines vary for each set of offenses. We have robbery, larceny, rape, sexual assault, fraud, drug crimes, and so on. So 
Each set of offenses has its own guidelines forms because we found when we developed these sentencing models, the judges take into consideration different factors depending on the nature of the, of the offense and depending on the decision being made, for example, wh whether or not someone would go to prison and for how long, the factors that they consider might have different weights for different offenses. So for example, in murder cases, prior record's really not as important as the fact that the current offense is murder. That's really gonna drive the sentencing decision. Um, but for a crime like larceny, prior record is much more important in determining whether or not uh, a judge will end up sentencing someone to prison. So for the guidelines, we have primary offense factors, including counts, so the nature of the most serious offense in the case and how many convictions, and a way to score any additional offenses, <clears throat> and a variety of prior record offenses, uh, prior record uh, factors to score. General factors, very specific factors related to certain types of prior convictions are all included, and they, again, they vary from uh, offense group to offense group. Whether or not someone was legally restrained at the time of the offense. Was somebody already on probation for a previous offense at the time they committed this new offense? And for larceny, for example, we have something very specific to embezzlement to account for the amount of money embezzled in the case. So just when a judge sentences with guidelines, this is a quick uh, overview. The statutory penalty ranges for every crime are prescribed in the Code of Virginia. For example, the statutory penalty range for the crime of robbery is five years up to life in prison. So very, very broad. The judge must impose a sentence within the statutory range, but the judge can then suspend time from it, and that would result in the effective or the active time that must be served. The guidelines recommend an effective sentence for the entire sentencing event. So for all the offenses and all the counts, could be one, it could be 100, all the offenses together that the offender was convicted of and that are being sentenced together now at the same time in front of the same judge. That's the guidelines recommendation. And the guidelines are presented to the judge as a range. This is just a sample where the range would be eight months, up to two years, six months, <clears throat> excuse me, with a midpoint of one year, six months. In this particular example, the offender was also recommended for an alternative punishment. Compliance, again, is voluntary. Judges are free to depart in any case they feel it's appropriate, and they only need to write a written reason of, for that departure and submit it with the sentencing guidelines worksheet. Judges tell me that they use the guidelines simply as the starting point. For example, they'll take a look at the midpoint in the range, and that is their starting point. And then they will take into account the particular aggravating and mitigating circumstances in the case in front of them to adjust then their sentencing decision upward or downwards from the guidelines recommendation. <clears throat> Just a couple of things for you to maybe talk about as we go further in this discussion. Judges in Virginia generally comply with the sentencing guidelines at a fairly high rate, 78 to 80%. When they do depart, overall, their direct, the departures are about evenly split, half below and half above the recommended range. Under truth in sentencing, we have data, of course, that offenders are indeed serving at least 85% of the sentence ordered by the court, and sometimes a little bit more than that, closer to 90%. Data also indicates to us that violent offenders are serving significantly longer under truth and sentencing provisions than they did under the old parole system. However, nonviolent offenders with no current or prior violent offenses are serving about the same amount of time on average as they did under parole, and that's that little red box. The, red, the blue bars are 
the average time served under the parole system. Yellow bars are the average time served or median time served under truth and sentencing. And we've looked at various profiles of offenders based on whether or not they had no violent prior record or they had some degree of violent prior record. We compare time served under parole versus truth and sentencing. So violent offenders are serving longer. Nonviolent offenders are serving about the same time on average. About 3,000 low-risk drug and property offenders are recommended for alternative sanctions every year. So we're recommending roughly half of these low-risk nonviolent felons, of these half of the nonviolent felons for some sort of alternative. And finally, research suggests that unwarranted sentencing disparities in Virginia have been reduced. Uh, the National Center for State Courts released a study uh, in 2009 that found, it, in particular, Virginia showed no substantively significant discrimination in sentencing outcomes. So that was fantastic news. They also found, by comparing us to other states, such as Michigan and Minnesota, they concluded that even guidelines, even voluntary guidelines, can have an impact in reducing those disparities. So Virginia was able to achieve that reduction in sentencing disparities, even with a voluntary system of sentencing guidelines. And that's it. So I am Linda Bryant, and I, as the introduction said, have done thousands of cases as a prosecutor. Um, and now I'm in a really neat position to be able to oversee the unit in Virginia that handles all criminal appeals to include all death penalty appeals, um, and also a lot of uh, correctional lawsuits. One of a separate, uh, a separate section is um, allegations of excessive force, and we can help resolve those. So I'm in a, and then I have another unit that's also deals with Medicaid fraud and going after some of the larger pharmaceutical companies that might engage in um, off-label marketing and fraud. So, so I found um, the judge's comments really interesting, and, and you know, it's good to be here. I can say as a practicing prosecutor in the trenches in Virginia for 18 years, I came to love the guidelines because um, it was like if you're in a jungle and you don't know where you're going and you all of a sudden get a compass. That's what it was like when we got the guidelines and we had a compass of what was going on and where to go and, and a better sense of um, what similarly situated people were, um, how, how they were being treated around the Commonwealth. So having worked with the guidelines in thousands of cases, I, I really liked the guidance that they provided. I think the key is, and tying this into the judge's comments from this morning, the key is that they're discretionary in Virginia. Um, I think talking a little bit also about mandatory minimums, because that was touched on as well this morning, you know, I think uh, anytime you have anything that's mandatory in the criminal justice system, Philosophically, you're running afoul potentially with the idea of treating every case on its own merits. So there's, there's this inherent tension between wanting to accumulate data and statistics to make sure you treat similarly situated people the same, but then also being able to treat each case on its own merits. So um, the nice thing about Virginia's guidelines are that they have been discretionary for the judges, and the judges are free to disregard them or to follow them. Um, so those are some of the broader issues that I, I wanted to touch on. Uh, the sentencing in general, we, you know, briefly again, that's, those are my concerns with mandatory minimums. Um, again, you have to balance the need for mandatory anything with the fact that they, the mandatory provisions are usually put in place because 
things were not being done before that. And the best instance of that we have in Virginia is in the context of domestic violence. Before the um, O.J. Simpson case, before the Office of Violence Against Women was created, before all of that, uh, domestic violence cases were, were really, a lot of arrests were not being made. Um, incidents of domestic violence were not being treated seriously. And there were, recent, there were studies in the 60s that the survey was then that, um, it did a survey of people and more women then felt it was okay for a husband to punch his wife than men today. So, you know, it is just kind of to show you how far we've come. And part of what changed the perception is the mandatory arrest policies that were put in place to require first responders at the, you know, oftentimes, um, well, well, police officers, there were requirements put in place that they must arrest the primary aggressor to force them to decide who, who assaulted whom. So, um, so, so I think there's a place for mandatory, I don't mean I think there's a place for mandatory policies to affect, or mandatory statutes and protocols to affect positive change. The difference between mandatory arrest laws is that they're not, there's no finality of being in prison for the rest of your life. Whereas with mandatory sentencing laws, um, you know, we may have some issues with the finality and the irreversibility of those decisions. Um, Virginia ran into this a couple years ago, and I know Dick Trodden is hiding in the audience, but, um, but but he's back there, and he was the Commonwealth Attorney in Arlington. And if you ever get a moment to see him in the hallways, um, he's an adjunct here. You know, he was on the Sentencing Commission, or excuse me, the Crime Commission in Virginia. And a couple years ago, right before he left, uh, the Crime Commission was very thoroughly studying the issue of certification of juveniles and the finality of those decisions. Once a juvenile is certified and they're tried as an adult, there are just far-reaching consequences. In Virginia, if you're over 14, um, you know, a, a certification and a trial as an adult, whether or not you get any time, whether or not the sentencing guidelines will even come to play, that, that conviction um, can be far more reaching in terms of its consequences for a juvenile. So that was sort of the hot issue that um, Virginia has, the hot issue Virginia's been dealing with in the sentencing arena and mandatory arena is, 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 as these laws apply to juveniles because, um, and the, gun, the mandatory gun laws. There's been some changes in the mandatory gun law uh, jurisprudence lately where what used to be mandatory minimums and you had to pile them on top of each other, now you can run them together at the same time. Um, so really now in Virginia, I would say my bottom line takeaways are I'm a big fan of the sentencing guidelines. They provide good guidance to help ensure similarly situated people are treated the same. Um, but I also think that, that Virginia's guidelines have worked because they're discretionary. Um, so they're a guidepost, not a requirement. And then you know, I hope I've offered some other like, things to think about um, for Virginia and moving forward from the policy perspective in terms of what's mandatory. Um, automatic sort of a required certification and certification and the impact of that on juveniles and context of mandatory arrests versus mandatory sentences. The <clears throat> I'm, I'm Steve Benjamin. Uh, I've been a criminal defense lawyer for my entire career. And the Virginia criminal justice system 
as well-intentioned as it is, and as populated as it is with professionals such as you've met today, scares me to death. Uh, I, I, it, it is a nightmare, and any one of you is one hair's breadth away from being immersed in your own personal nightmare because the protections afforded the innocent citizen in this commonwealth are scarce to none. And the values of our criminal justice system uh, place greater emphasis on the finality of a conviction than the correctness of a prosecution. Confining my remarks, however, to sentencing, let me make these observations. Uh, Virginia is almost unique in the country in that it permits uh, juries to do the sentencing. Uh, in the federal court system, and in, I think, virtually all but maybe one other state, uh, judges who are trained in sentencing and have a vast array of sentencing prerogatives available uh, and have the perspective of being seasoned and intelligent jurors. They perform the sentencing function. Juries perform the fact-finding function, but not in Virginia. In Virginia, if you exercise your right to have a jury decide the factual matters in your case, uh, or if the prosecution insists on a jury, because they also have the right to insist on a jury, even if you want to waive your right to a jury. If a jury convicts, then a second phase of the trial takes place immediately, and that is the sentencing. At the sentencing, and not until the sentencing, the jury is informed of what the statutory range of punishment is. Uh, they are then instructed that they are to return a sentence within that statutory range. Uh, they are provided the criminal history information, if any exists, and they're allowed to consider the defendant's prior criminal history and any other relevant mitigating evidence that the defense seeks to put on. They must sentence within that range. S so here's what happens. Um, for let's say, just even first offense, possession of uh, a substance, uh, Schedule One or Schedule Two controlled substance, cocaine. First offense, possession of a residue, well, first, first offense, possession of uh, any amount of cocaine with the intent to distribute it. Uh, it doesn't have to be for profit, intent to distribute. Uh, the statutory range is five to 40 years. If you dispute your guilt if you are in fact innocent or even if you just want to put the state to their burden of guilt, their burden of proof, and take a jury, if the jury convicts you, then the jury must return a sentence of at least five years. The judge has the ultimate power of sentencing. And so once a jury sentences, say to five years, uh, then the judge retains the power to suspend all or any part of that five years. But the culture in Virginia has always been that judges do not alter the jury sentence. Uh, they are, th it's never been their culture. I think Meredith would have, may have the statistics. Do you have them available now? Or? Okay, fewer than one in five judges. And that is an improvement, I suspect, over how it used to be. Uh, but they're gradually beginning to um, alter jury sentences. But generally, they do not. 
Uh, and so that means that if you, and here's what you also must understand, juries cannot suspend, only judges can. Now, if you, on that same case, had waived your right to a jury and you had a judge try your case, then the judge, if he convicts you, uh, will receive the guideline information. And that's another difference. Juries are not provided with the guideline information. They will be provided your criminal record, but not the guidelines. And so juries, who arguably need this information more than a judge, because for many of them this is their first time ever in a sentencing aspect, uh, they're deprived of the historical sentencing information for similarly situated defendants. They are required to return a sentence completely ignorant of what anyone else similarly situated historically would have received. Only judges get that information. In that same case, uh, a first offense, actually it doesn't even have to be a first offense, uh, possession with intent to distribute, uh, any amount of cocaine, less than 28 grams, say, which is an ounce. Uh, the guideline range would be between seven months and a year and four months, with the midpoint of 12 months being the midpoint sentencing range. So you're a defendant and you think, wow, if I take a jury, and I really want a jury, uh, if I lose, they have to impose five years. They could impose 10 or 20 or 30 years, and this judge is unlikely to alter that. What we used to hear all the time, I don't know that judges necessarily, I think they stopped saying this, um, but they always used to say when we would complain about a jury sentence, you're the one who chose the jury. In other words, you chose it, you live with the sentence, no matter how draconian it might be. So if, you take, if a jury convicts you, you get at least five years, maybe more. If a judge convicts you, you would probably get a sentence between seven months and a year and four months, although he might suspend the entire thing. The other problem with jury sentencing is that, uh, with some exception, because there are one or two judges in the state who interpret the, the dispositive Supreme Court holding differently, and I think correctly, uh, judges feel that they are not permitted and will not permit uh, during voir dire of potential jurors uh, the question they, they won't permit the potential jurors to be informed of the sentencing range in the event that they convict. And so, uh, unlike in a capital case, in a capital case there's this process eerily called death qualifying a jury, where you have to ensure that only jurors willing to impose a death penalty will be impaneled. Uh, but in any other trial where you would think, well, I, I should by like measure be entitled to ask potential jurors uh, this is the sentencing range from five to 40 years in the event you convict. Are there any of you who would not be able to impose at least the minimum if you convicted him, if you found him guilty beyond a reasonable doubt? Now, that seems like a very fair question if you want to get a jury that's going to discharge their sentencing responsibility. But prosecutors object to that question and judges uh, sustain that objection their belief is that if you tell a jury the minimum that they have to impose, they might not be so quick to convict. Well, that's just wrongheaded. I'm sorry. That's just wrong. But that is the state in Virginia. And it's exacerbated because if a jury, having convicted somebody, and it should come as no surprise to you that juries sometimes will compromise. They'll think, well, we're not really certain that he's guilty, or they might say to the one or two or five holdouts, okay, look, 
you're, you want to vote not guilty, we want to vote guilty, we'll go ahead and convict them, but we won't give them any time. And so they work out this agreement, they go back in, they announce unanimous verdict of guilt, and then the judge says, you must sentence to at least five years. The jury goes back in the jury room, and they're like, oh, no, no, we're not going to have any of this, and they hang. So you have a hung jury on sentencing. Well, the law, I think just last year, or maybe two years ago, was amended uh, in Virginia. It used to be that if the jury hung on sentencing, then the case would be retried from its very beginning. You would start over with a new jury, try the guilt phase. If convicted, go on to the sentencing. The law has been amended so that if that happens, then you impanel a new jury, but only for sentencing. You're told that they have been convicted. Here's the facts. And then you sentence. Uh, and so we have a, a, just a horrific, we've taken the bad idea of jury sentencing and far from being their truth in sentencing. What truth in sentencing means, only that the jury learns what the criminal history is. They don't learn about guidelines. They aren't informed of the range until they've convicted, and then it's too late for, for any justice. And finally, they never have access to the uh, alternative sanctions that Meredith has talked about. They know nothing about risk assessment. They don't know about and don't have any power to recommend or, or sentence somebody to a diversion program or drug treatment. They have none of that power. All they can do is incarcerate, and it's a, uh, a very bad system. Further on sentencing, mandatory minimums. Uh, a, a very bad idea, because no person uh, and nobody's background or history or circumstances are unique, and judges are judges because they have the wisdom and the intellect and the power and perspective to take that into consideration. Um, but mandatory, the bad idea of mandatory minimums have, have not only appeared in Virginia, they've taken flight until they've become extreme, and the underlying premise, uh, all of the underlying premises are false. I think the initial premise is that there are some ju there are judges who are too soft. No Virginia judge I know is too soft. Uh, it may be that people don't like some of the sentences that are handed down, but the idea that judges who have to be reappointed by the General Assembly uh, are too soft is, is a fiction. But the other thing that concerns me even more is this. A mandatory minimum sentence can only be justified if the person is in fact guilty. Uh, and we know, because of the DNA exonerations of the 80s and 90s, uh, that we don't always get it right. In fact, we are notoriously bad about convicting innocent people and sentencing them for, I think, Thomas Hainsworth served 28 years before he was exonerated. Earl Washington was on death row. Uh, and those are just two of a long, long list. Uh, and these are only the DNA exonerations we know about. Uh, but it's one thing to say that uh, a, p a possibly innocent person, who after all has been convicted beyond all reasonable doubt, gets a mandatory minimum sentence of 5 or 10 or 15 years, so who cares? You know, what's 15 years in somebody's life? Uh, the problem is that we're, we're getting a little happy uh, and excited and zealous about these mandatory minimums because I suspect it sounds so good to talk about the passage and the enactment of stiff mandatory minimums. And so now we have uh, a, a mandatory minimum for the category of, of rape. Okay, if you, if you have any carnal relationship with uh, a child under 13, 
Uh, they, of course, are not considered capable of consent uh, in, in jurisprudence. And so even if the act is by definition voluntary, uh, then it, it's still considered rape. There's no element of force, threat, intimidation, unconsciousness, helplessness. Just the fact of having sex with a child under 13 is by definition rape. Uh, if it's alleged in the indictment, the charging instrument, that the offender was 18 or older and you're convicted, then the mandatory sentence is life. It's a mandatory life sentence. Now, intelligent people might disagree about whether that is good policy. But what I think no one would disagree about is that that is an outrageous policy if there is a possibility that the person who has been convicted is innocent. And, and that's the fallacy here, because we have created a mandatory minimum of life imprisonment on the assumption of absolute, unquestionable guilt. And that's not our standard in criminal trials. The, you know, prosecutors will often point out to the jury that their standard of, of proof is only that they must prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And they will, be, they will say to the jury, it's not our burden to prove guilt beyond all possible guilt. We don't have to do that. It's not our burden to prove guilt beyond all moral doubt. That's not. We just have to prove beyond all reasonable doubt. Well, the problem is, and I think uh, sexual assault against children is a good example, as horrific a crime as it is, children are the most irresponsible and incapable of understanding the, the sanctity of the oath, the importance of telling the truth. They are more prone to uh, telling uh, a fib or a fiction or a fairy tale to their classmate for the stimulation or the attention. And once they utter it to whomever they say this outrageous tale, it ends up in an arrest and a prosecution. I have reviewed cases because these tragic cases come to us after verdict where convictions have been upheld where the sole witness was a four-year-old who testified. Now, that, that means that a four-year-old is capable by dint of accusing an adult of something, no matter how outrageous or how incredible their testimony, of imposing a, a mandatory life sentence. And that's crazy. Uh, collateral consequences. That challenges the premise uh, with which Sean began this. His premise was that sentencing is the most important aspect of the criminal prosecution. And unfortunately, we've arrived at the day where that may not be the case. Uh, I often have to tell people that the sentence that they might receive for a criminal conviction may be the least of their concerns, especially if they commit a sexual assault. Uh, because the collateral consequences there, anybody, it, you can serve a period of incarceration and still the idea always was once you paid your debt to society, then you were capable and you were permitted to redeem yourself. We, we had a great, we placed great value on the, the importance of redemption, uh, but that's no longer possible. And certainly it, it's not possible if you're a sex offender because you are required to register, and for many of the sex offenders, you must register with the state police for life re-register, I think it's every 90 days, every change of address, every change of email address, every change of vehicle, uh, virtually every change you make, you must immediately register within days or even that same day. 
uh, depending upon what you've changed, uh, and you, you are branded for life. Not only are you on the sex offender registry for life, uh, you are also prohibited in many of the things that you can do. You're prohibited in where you can live. You are prohibited in where you can work. You are prohibited in where you can go. If you're a sex offender and you uh, have a child, you cannot go to school to pick up your child. You cannot go to school to see your child perform in a play. Uh, that was such an abhorrent restriction at the time it was enacted just several years ago that an exception was created so that if you got permission of the school board and you got per a court order, you could go with certain special permission. This year, I think we have passed, uh, we've added that, that you now have to public publish a notice in the newspaper uh, for two weeks that you're making this petition and advise people that anybody who is concerned can notify the Commonwealth's attorney. Uh, that's if you want to pick up your own child from school. Ridiculous. But collateral consequences, nothing, nothing even comes close to the concept of civil commitment. Uh, if you are a violent sex offender, and that's a vast category of crimes that keeps expanding year after year, then once you are about to be released, you've served whatever sentence uh, you have received, and believe me, they are serious sentences. After, when you're about to be released from, impri from imprisonment for the crime, the Attorney General reviews every such person about to be released and determines whether they meet the criteria for civil commitment. And if they do, then uh, with some nod towards due process, but not much of one, uh, you are civilly committed. That, that is, you are committed to uh, what is essentially another prison, although it is constitutional so long as it exists for treatment, uh, and you will be held there until and unless uh, the people in charge feel that you are cured, that uh, you no longer pose a threat to society. There's a couple catches there. Number one, for some people, like a man named, uh, I think it's McAllister, uh, he has now served his sentence, uh, if I have this right. Uh, A absolutely, <laughs> and I, I, don't, I don't view it as rebuttal. Uh, I, I want you to have as informed uh, a notion of something that's very current right now. And, and uh, you are certainly more familiar with the facts than I am. So I am the lay perspective on this, and I do this to kind of set it up for you. But uh, it, it is said uh, that the prosecution and uh, various law enforcement officers who worked on the case, uh, and a number of people feel that Mr. McAllister is absolutely innocent. Um, and uh, yet we are told that he is being considered for civil commitment. Uh, one of the problems for Mr. McAllister is at the time he was convicted, there wasn't even such a thing as civil commitment. This came along after the fact. Uh, but it, it is a current thing, and I'm not well informed on it, and uh, the person who is better equipped to speak on that is sitting right beside me. So I toss that up only if she wants to, to touch on it, because it is an ongoing thing. Actually, but I'm about to finish. Yeah. So let me, let me finish, and then we'll, I'll turn it over. Um, the problem is this idea that you're not released, getting away from a specific case until you're cured, is that if you are in fact innocent, 
you've got a problem because uh, currently you're not considered cure. I mean, you can't participate and receive sex offender treatment unless you admit to your criminal conduct. You see, you have to admit to what you did so you can come to, to grips with it. But if you're innocent, that's the very last thing you can do. And, and that's a big problem. Finally, uh, there's this pervasive notion in Virginia that finality is more important than accuracy. Uh, this is what we have always run into. This is why Virginia has the notorious 21-day rule of finality. 21 days after sentencing, after final judgment's entered, that the judge loses all power to do anything in the case, even if you come up on day 22 with absolute evidence of innocence. Uh, the judge is powerless to do anything. And finality pervades our system even today. It's something I'm running up to in a case currently being litigated in Abemarle, where I have, I think, by anyone's criteria, demonstrably innocent man who has, I cannot get out because of the importance of finality. So that is uh, uh, my concluding remark. Uh, the writs of innocence are virtually impossible to meet. Uh, they offer little or no relief. So things are pretty dismal, uh, and there's a lot of work to be done. But I'm confident that with the professionals that we've got, because I really am optimistic that we can make some progress. Well, yeah, I will. I'll use Steve's, and I'll keep it over here for... Um, so, so no, I, I, do, I do agree, Final, finality is a scary thing, and um, I think in the last 20 years that in Virginia we've seen movement away from finality, and so, so there, are, there are a lot of the cases that Steve mentioned are cases that my office has been dealing with, and McAllister, the sexually violent predator case, um, is one of them, and I, you know, in, in fact, to reflect the changing times and the changing perspective, uh, the unit that was formerly called the, the uh, Capital Litigation Unit, the Death Penalty Unit, it's now been changed to um, the Actual Innocence and Capital Litigation Unit because what the section chief of that unit um, does so much of is she's examining allegations of innocence. So the problem with, with court proceedings and criminal justice and all of this is if we don't have a mechanism to adjudicate whether someone committed a crime, then we will have anarchy. So we're always in this inherent tension about finality or, or a long-term result, finality after, or changing, a, changing a, a sentence after 30 years, as in the Hainsworth case, is really, you know, that's not a good thing, even if in the end it wasn't a final decision. He was released after a certain number of years for that person, um, you know, that's <laughs> one day in jail is way too long. So we're, so we're always balancing the need for resolution um, to prevent anarchy with, with the finality of decisions and the burden that is put on um, the defendant who's in prison usually to overcome that, that form of finality. There is movement away from that, though, and that's why we do now have a, um, a actual innocence division, so to speak, and in fact, I've, I've instructed that attorney to reach out to places like the um, Innocence Project, and she's been working with the Innocence Project in this, in this McAllister sexually violent predator case. So there are, so so, but regardless of what people think, and what what I found is when you read things in the paper, oftentimes if lawyers are going to be following their ethical code that requires them not to speak about a pending case, <laughs> and not to use the media to gain a, an advantage. Um, 
typically the prosecutors and the people representing the government, they have an ethical duty not to speak to the media. So then what happens is you have um, oftentimes nonprofits that are able to speak. So there's a narrative um, that really doesn't always reflect the whole picture. So what, what we have to fight against, um, I guess, as government lawyers, so to speak, is, you know, is, is, is trying to also reflect the, the victim's side of things, um, to reflect the narrative that's not heard, um, and to reflect things that don't make its way into the media. So just keep that in mind when you're reading cases. If you look up the McAllister case and you think, oh, no, just keep in mind there is always another side. In the McAllister, in the McAllister case, um, that is a very troubling case. I mean, I, when you read what you read in the paper, you'll find it troubling. And where that is right now, and I think this might, I think there was a recent article in the um, Richmond Times. We cannot, I cannot comment on that, um, but I will say that there is always the remedy of going to the governor's office to get a pardon. And, you know, there are certain, certain players, their arms are tied. So once a conviction is obtained by the prosecutor, the state code uh, oftentimes, once it's appealed, and it goes on up and up and up. There's, there's, there's only certain things certain players can do before it gets to the next level, and that, that person at that higher level has to be the one to make the decision. And so you might be, like in, the, in Mike Herring is the prosecutor in Richmond who's kind of involved in the McAllister case, and he believes that McAllister did not commit this crime. It happened 30 years ago, and there's a victim out there who, um, you know, who there's an, another side where that victim's input has to be had as well. So, you know, so there's a lot, there's a lot of things that have to be brought in to bear before a decision is made. Because just as final, a conviction is final, but so is releasing someone without all the facts. Um, and what, what, you know, what, so that's another part. It's the public safety part of this. Um, and, and, you know, I feel that the role of the role that of the attorney general now and my division is to make sure we get our facts straight. So we've had two cases on appeal: um, a juvenile that was convicted or adju was adjudicated delinquent, went to um, Department of Juvenile Justice for a sex offense, and um, and and he was appealing the determination that he should be a sex offender. It went up on appeal and um, made it all the way through the appellate system, and then it came back on what's called ineffective assistance of counsel, meaning the defense lawyer didn't do a good job, essentially, or did something wrong, or did, didn't do something they should have done. And I looked at that case, and I had the discretion at that point when it was back through my unit on another uh, proceeding to say we're not going to support continuing to have this person declared a sex offender. So, you know, so, so what I want our unit to do, and hopefully we fall in that category of people trying to move things forward and get things done correctly, is just because, you know, we're government officials, um, we, we also have a duty as, as we, have, we have a duty as government officials to get it right. And, um, and if there's facts that suggest someone's innocent, regardless of, of whether the attorney general has the authority to release someone, we have a duty to pass that information on. So, um, so, so there are ways to get to where we need to go. Um, I do have to say, you know, and this is the challenge of these, of these cases. Steve mentioned um, the four-year-old sex cases. And, and, you know, I will say a lot of times when you have tough-on-crime laws, you know, it's challenging because tough-on-crime is not always smart-on-crime. 
and and you know that's why it, it, this is a challenging field. It's so easy to give that tough on crime soundbite, but it's not always smart on crime. Drug courts have proven they're proven to to be effective, um, and now the data is incorporated into the sentencing guidelines. So that's that's a, a step of a measure of progress. But Steve's absolutely right. You know, you have we have a juvenile now that's requesting a pardon, and he's also um, doing some litigation in federal court, where he had a, a mandatory sentence from. Uh, I think it's like life plus. I mean, it's it's a crazy mandatory gun sentence for a crime he committed when he was 17 or 18. And and so, you know, these things preceded some of the evolving progressive case law. Um, and, and, you know, the sexually, the sexually Violent Predator Act, that happened in the mid, that came out in the mid-90s. So we didn't even have the mechanism to, to declare someone a sexually violent predator. So essentially, once they're done with their prison sentence, they can be deemed to be so dangerous that they have to stay in a civil facility. And that didn't happen until the late 90s. And so, um, and so Steve's right. Now what we're seeing is we're seeing people that are not technically in prison, but they're still in a facility. That having been said, this is why I am such a big fan of the guidelines, because what's happened since the Sexually Violent Predator Civil Commitment Act was put into place, the late 90s, early 2000, when it went into effect, the guidelines now, remember Meredith talked about calculating a risk for violent offenses, now the data that should have been incorporated at sentencing in the criminal context is now being incorporated. In the 90s, before, before several years ago, the risk factors were not being incorporated. So you would have dangerous pedophiles that could get out after two years, okay? You could have these very dangerous people that could get out very quickly. And so the Sexually Violent Predator Act was put into place to make sure those that were a threat that had a disorder could be treated so that they weren't walking down the street and, 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 and you know, I'm not going to say anything more, but, but uh, you know, there's a, that's a, that's a, does, that is a problem. Pedophilia is a, a diagnosed um, problem. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a disorder. And, and it's a danger. So now those same risk factors are taken into account earlier in the, cent- in the criminal justice phase. So what I'm hoping, and this is kind of what I'm, I've just directed my sexually violent predator unit to be thinking about, is hopefully we won't have a need for the sexually violent predator unit in 15 years because once the violent scores um, that Meredith is now including in the criminal justice leg of this, once they are taken into account, we're going to see less and less people committed as a civilly, um, sexually violent predator. So hopefully we're getting to where it all makes sense. 